Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to the first Local Zero episode of 2024 with Becky and Fraser. Good to be back. Sadly, we don't have Matt today, but you will be with us for the next one. Today, we're talking about the role that artists and writers can have on climate action. In November last year, Paper Boats, a collective of Scotland-based writers, artists and activists focused on nature and environment, gathered outside the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh to demand cross-party support for urgent action on the climate crisis. Yes, and earlier today, we spoke with two of the founding members of Paper Boats, writer Sandy Winterbottom and national poet of Scotland, Kathleen Jamie. They talked to us about the Paper Boats initiative. They spoke about the very troubling divide between the science and the arts that desperately needs to be overcome. And they shared their hopes and dreams for the future. We'll also hear a reading from Kathleen, so it's well worth sticking around for that. We strongly encourage listeners to get involved in the conversation, as always, whether that's via X, Twitter, at Local Zero Pod, or you can email in episode suggestions and queries to localzeropod at gmail.com. And as you'll have heard at the very beginning of the episode, Local Zero is looking for new funding to keep it going. If the pod has helped with your work or studies, please do get in touch to let us know. This helps us more than you might think. Before we get into everything and before we play you our chat with Kathleen and Sandy, it's our first episode back after a very extended winter break. It's lovely to see your face, Fraser. How are you? I'm good, Becky. I'm uh, a bit windswept and a little bit damp from <laughs> yeah. all the weather we've been having, but the break was nice. I took off um, a solid three weeks, which is the first time I think I've done that in my life. And it was just, yeah, really, really nice. How about you? Yeah, it was lovely. I had a nice long break. Um, I think that, I mean, I always think with kids, like, is it really a break? <laughs> Some of it just one form of work to another. Uh, but it was lovely. It was lovely to have that uh, loud distraction in my life. But yes, it has been. Uh, it has been interesting with the number of storms that we've got. And as we're as we're sat here recording this. We've just gotten through down in Cornwall a number of days with sort of, you know, severe weather warnings, um, 70 mile an hour winds. And 
this is not this is not the first one like I actually am struggling to remember a time uh you know in the last few months where it hasn't been this windy and I think I think our producer Patrick put this in the show notes since September last year there have been 12 named storms that's got to be some sort of a record right yeah, it's it's scary, genuinely scary. So where where we are, I know you're down in, in Cornwall, Beck, and you felt a lot of it. We're up we're up in northeast Scotland. And basically if you look at any severe weather map, the little red dot in the middle, we're we're that's just about my house. Or you yeah. look at the collection <laughs> of houses around it. So we we felt so many of them recently. I feel I'm I'm someone who likes to feel sort of positive or at least um determined in the face of of sort of climate crisis to get stuff done that's the purpose of this podcast right but i find myself feeling increasingly anxious because it's just so consistent and we get you know we we have storms over winter that happens but this isn't when we talk to sort of people locally it's it's like nothing anyone's seen before just the frequency of it is yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's so much yeah it's really bringing it home i think and making it a much more kind of visceral experience um i mean we'll kind of tap into some of that i guess when we when we hear the conversation uh that we had with uh with sandy and kathleen but like that real that real importance of of kind of connecting people not just with the data but with those lived experiences and and what climate change really fundamentally is going to mean yeah that's it that's it we're, we're feeling it very very sharply just now in a way that we probably haven't felt it in in the uk we had uh, last year remember in the summer last year we were having there were, there were fires and all kinds of stuff as well mm-hmm. now we're we're looking at more and more flooding and something that that we are i don't know if it's the same for yourself becky i'm sure it is but that we're struggling with in this neck of the woods is because the storms have gotten so frequent the damage done to roads to trees to sort of fields the natural environment in general it doesn't have a chance to repair and the council doesn't have a chance to to come in and fix it or it certainly doesn't have the resource to fix it every single time it's happening and a lot of this um for, mm. for this area of the country stems from the fact that we've done away with so much natural mitigation in the name of developing farmlands to make money largely speaking right we didn't know what mm. we know now back then when we were doing it in you know 17 1800s yeah. But we did away with so much of this kind of marshland and this these wetlands to to make room for more farming. So now we have less natural mitigation. But the impacts of that are we simply don't have the resource, or we're having to drum up a whole lot more resource to try and repair these things after the fact. So it's it's this kind of all of these decisions that we've made. And again, appreciate we didn't have the information way back in the agricultural revolution, but all those decisions now are coming coming home to roost. And it's it's a really serious, serious issue, especially for councils, businesses and citizen communities, mm. first and foremost, but councils who are struggling for cash in the UK already having to find this extra money. It's a, uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot. Against a backdrop of, of course, the fact that, you know, people have been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed over the last what 12 to 18 months hikes in energy prices people not being able to afford fundamental things and the the cost of living and I guess sort of you know we don't want to start the year on too much of a downer so I will sort of (laughs) flip a little bit to some some positive news I was very pleased by an article I read talking about the fact that energy bills are finally expected to to start dropping and so if this was a stemming from a piece of research that was done by Cornwall Insight, who have now forecast that bills will fall by 16% compared uh, to the to the past quarter. And that's more than we had thought that they would 
last December. So a little bit of good and glimmering news amongst amongst all of this devastation. Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. I, I think the the longer term forecast was in the region of about twenty percent um, out to out to next year. Obviously, that's a bit a bit less certain in terms of what you can predict, but certainly a sign that that bills are are moving the way that they should be. Now they'll, they'll still be higher than pre crisis, but that the trend in this direction is is certainly a positive sign. Um, I think now that that means that we have to sort of figure out a lot of people have you know accrued a lot of debt, a lot of damage has been done the last few years. But as bills comes down come down, we can we can start to think about more longer term, more sustainable solutions to get everyone back up onto onto that playing field. So I would say work to do, Becky, but certainly certainly the right direction, and it, and it's good to see it last. It is good to see it last. Something else that's that's come out recently, Becky, that's that's of interest to to the work in the energy space that, that you and I and, and you in particular are doing was a, a new report from the Regulatory Assistance Project on uh, unlocking flexibility and flexible technologies and flexible services in the energy system uh, for a wider group of, of people. An exciting report, would you agree? Yes, I was, I was very pleased to see this report come out. Really, really exciting stuff, looking at how um, we can start to think about that kind of flexible system that our that our energy system is moving towards and that need for flexibility at the household level, how we can really start to think about that in a far more socially inclusive way. So, you know, there is certainly a risk with the way that a lot of uh, flexibility is being done and considered and offered that could effectively lock whole swathes of the population out of this, out of being able to deliver it. And that could fundamentally be because they rely on medical equipment that doesn't have flexibility, or it could be that they just can't afford to upgrade to the technologies to provide that flexibility. So all different sorts of reasons. And one of the things that has troubled me a little bit when I've um, when I've discussed this with other people in the industry is the notion of like, well, you know, the system needs its flexibility and for people that can't engage in it, there are other mechanisms like bill support, for example, or social tariffs that can overcome some of these challenges. And, and actually, one of the things that this report highlights is that that bill support won't be enough in the long term to protect some of these vulnerable or disadvantaged households from missing out all of the benefits that can be brought by a clean, electrified, um, flexible system. And actually, to be truly inclusive, we really need to open up flexibility for everyone. And uh, and the report goes on to talk about different ways that, that we can think about doing that and, and what that really means as, I guess, providers are looking to build out policies and products for flexibility. So a very, very interesting report that I would encourage anybody that's working in the flexibility space uh, space to read. I think a, a great summation. And it, it is, it's interesting. What I, what I liked about that support, um, uh, that report, sorry, um, on top of the, the points that you've raised, Becky, is is how it recognizes diversity of sort of 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 need of circumstance, but it, it starts from a point really of flexibility, um, but in the first instance meeting the needs of of people and households, and then building out from there rather than imprinting or imposing energy system needs or, or whatever external needs onto onto those groups. And I think that's an, a nice way to frame it and a good recognition that flexibility. Um, or demand reduction, as may sometimes be the case, or or uh, or whatever alternatives are included, will look different for different people, and that's right. That's it should 
there's not going to be a one size fits all. Um, so yes, definitely encourage uh, everyone to to pick that up. Yeah, and I, and I love the idea of thinking about that. You know, how how do you make things work for all different sorts of people? I guess one of the things that comes before that is shifting the shifting awareness, shifting the dialogue, people engaging more in in this kind of I guess new world that we're moving into. If you if you go back just what five or ten years, I can imagine that most people barely ever thought about energy. And if you go back a bit further, probably climate very rarely came up and building that awareness building that engagement is is so important and a really important first step and I think the conversation that we had with Kathleen and with Sandy from Paper Boats which I think we should get onto it in in just a moment is absolutely fundamental to all of the work that we're doing around climate and energy because a lot of the changes that we that we talk about whether it's flexibility whether it's you know ripping your old boiler out and putting in a new cleaner heating technology whether it's insulating your home whether it's shifting how you move around or whether it's some of those broader collective and community actions that we take we're never going to get into action without inspiration and without people becoming more involved and engaged in this dialogue around climate and energy. And so, you know, I think sometimes the kind of that very notion of, of how do you engage people? How do you reach people? We, we sort of forget that. And we start at the point of like assuming that people are engaged and how they can take action. So bringing all those those pieces together and joining the dots is, is absolutely critical. Here, 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 here. And I think on that note, let's let's get into it. My name is Sandy Winterbottom and I'm a writer and I'm involved in the Paper Boats campaign. Hello, I'm Kathleen Jamie. I'm also a writer, a poet, and uh, latterly I've been involved in the Paper Boats campaign. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sandy and Kathleen, for joining us today. Hoping we could maybe start with perhaps a little bit of background about paper boats. So for those that might not know about it, can you just give us a bit of an insight of what it is and, and really kind of how it came into being? Maybe Sandy, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah. Paper boats really came out of a collaboration of nature writers loosely associated with Stirling University. Um, Chris Pavici there gathered us together at the beginning of 2023 to discuss what 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 we felt about nature and what we felt about the the significant changes that we saw happening in nature and we sort of gathered numbed and nerd and as the summer progressed by about june we we were suffering from really dreadful droughts up in scotland and some of our members were talking about um going out and ringing golden eagles and finding that the chicks were some of them were dying on their nests and other other people in our group were rescuing hedgehogs that were basically starving to death because there was no invertebrates for them to eat so we we all recognized that we were entering very worrying times for the for nature in Scotland obviously it's been worrying times for the global south for much longer than that but we we really wanted to add our voices to that we've certainly all been writing along those lines for considerably longer but it was how can we gather together and really raise our voices as to to what was happening so we we kind of did a very gentle soft launch at the Edinburgh Book Festival we made some paper boats and took them without really much much tear of what we were doing to be honest it was really just a question of 
wanting to speak out and, and trying to find a mechanism for that. And Kathleen, anything to add? And maybe you could also tell us, like, why the paper boat? Well, I'm a poet. I'm actually Scotland's national poet at the minute. And after the COP26 summit, we all, I think, felt that feeling of deflation, you know, like what has been achieved here? And uh, I thought, you know, I, I want to engage with this as a poet. And so I wrote a poem called What the Clyde Said After COP26, a poem about what, you know, what this post-industrial river thought about all this stuff that was going on in its banks. And the, the poem was, um, if I say it myself, a great success. And, and the image um, of a paper boat featured in the poem, and that's what the, the group picked up on. So, so I was extremely moved when they suggested making this group called paper boats from the image in my poem and it went from there and it's just a you know poetry works sometimes so how has how has paper boats evolved then what is what is the state of the campaign today what are some of the the, the things that you're up to sandy so uh, we're, we're still kind of finding our feet with paper boats it's still very new we're only sort of six months into to it officially I suppose um, one of the things that we do is to publish writing on on the climate crisis so we have an online e-zine um, effectively and we invite writers to to write to our themes which is climate action writing in Scotland so those are our kind of four remits if you like and um, and we've had some fantastic writing that's really um, got to the visceral heart of the climate crisis. Um, so that's one thing that we do. And we, we pair that action or we try to pair that action up with on the ground action. <clears throat> so one of the things that we've been doing is literally making paper boats and sending them to politicians as a, as a message to say, look, this is what we're really concerned about. What are you doing about it? I think it's it's um, evolving as a group for those people who are now really, really concerned, but who for many reasons <clears throat> can't or won't glue themselves to, to oil tankers, you know. I have a lot of time for the young people with that sort of passion, but it's not available to the rest of us. So we wanted to find a way that um, where people could express this increasing anxiety and, and you know, discomfort people who've possibly never been engaged in any sort of active, activism before. And um, the paper boat is such a lovely, innocent wee symbol. And anyone can make one and anyone can do it. And it's it's caught people's imaginations, I think. So Kathleen, from that, it sounds like a lot of the paper boats campaign is, you know, partly about this kind of a different way of, of voicing some of these issues, but it's also about opening up the issue to a, a wider range of people with you know, an, an easier way in to, to take action and to, to be a part of, of that movement. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say. And it's also the, a place that, that I'm personally really um, keen on, which is where art and science and ordinary people meet, you know. And if there's anything good comes out of this climate crisis, it's going to be the healing of the divisions between especially the arts and the sciences, you know, because it's, um, well, we have to. So, yes, it's a place for... Um, do you know what? It is, at the minute, mostly older women. But if you want something done, you've got to ask older women. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I think this is a really a really interesting point. And certainly, you know, my, my background is in a more technical subject, but I have moved on and, and work at that, I guess, at the boundary of, of 
some of the social sciences and the physical sciences. But art has typically, and yeah. I've seen it happen again and again, sort of left out of the picture, like folk don't, um, that are looking at some of the, the practical changes that need to happen on the ground often don't engage with the wider humanities. So, I mean, how you're saying, you know, we need to kind of overcome this divide that we've seen. So what role do you think that the humanities or artists and writers such as yourselves can and should be having on climate action more broadly? Like, is this a really important um, way to help shape public opinion? What other sorts of roles do you do you think need, uh, the sector can have? Do you want my five-minute rant on how so many scientific yes. projects have, have dumped, <laughs> dumped the arts and dumped writers? At a time of extreme crisis, they've taken half of human imagination, half of human knowledge, half of human wisdom, and dumped it in a skip. That's my rant. So absolutely, where are the artists on the, on the scientific projects? Where are the people who can do the connective tissue, as I call it, like, like Sandy and I do? Frankly, you know, it's, you, you can publish scientific monographs, which half a dozen other scientists might cite, and and you can get painters, artists, filmmakers, poets on the scene with you, and they can do that stuff. They can bring it to the public. You know, they can, they can transform. It's not our only task, but it's well something we can do. They can transform that data into lived experience, and you know, have people read it on the bus. Right, I'll stop. But I really am quite exercised about this. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think we would we would certainly agree, rightly so, Kathleen and Sandy. I'd like to come for your perspective on that as well. It's we 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 know a lot about how science alone simply isn't isn't enough to either communicate or to to deliver to deliver action on this. Is this a a role that you see paper boats have in increasingly is is joining up those those dots, the connective tissue, as Kathleen called it? Yeah. Absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. And I, I, I agree with that as somebody whose background is a scientist. I was an environmental scientist for 20 years and I kind of jumped ship um, precisely for those reasons is that we, we've clearly failed to communicate the urgency of this crisis um, as scientists. Um, so how, how do we reach out to people who, who don't have access to that scientific understanding that scientific reports need. Um, I think I had some real wake-up calls when I would show people graphs and say, look, isn't this terrible? And they would look at me as if to say, what what, what on earth are you showing me here? And we, we have that. I think as scientists, we assume that people have a level of understanding that, that can grapple with these really difficult issues and they are really complex difficult issues and if you read the IPCC reports um they're very dry the the language is is somebody said to me the other day the language is very mealy-mouthed you know could should maybe um you know percentage chances and all that and how do we actually translate that into something that that people really get and really understand so that part of the reasons I I kind of jumped ship was to to kind of get that across in a different way. I think that's that's really important, Sandy. And on, on the, I, I guess one of the, and I'm I'm conscious here. I'm not trying to step into a minefield, but one of the the critiques often levelled at the arts and culture sectors broadly is um, the issue of class. And I think a lot of the same critique is levelled at you know 
I guess, over-reliance on, on scientific information and the, the um, sort of higher education sector in general. Do you think campaigns like Paper Boats are more effective at sort of bridging that gap beyond the, let's say, the people who are typically concerned about climate to reach new audiences and new people? I don't know. Um, I don't know if I can say it in your, your podcast, but uh, when we did our action outside the, the Scottish Parliament in November, it went down very well, except for some of us that could call us middle class wankers. You know, so <laughs> I think we're late enough in the podcast you can't see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think there is a class issue, and it's, it's also to do with um, the pressures that ordinary people are under. And the last thing they can be thinking about, you know, is, is rising sea levels in, you know, somewhere else. Their own houses, our own houses, are now being flooded. You know, mm. when it's really, it's really coming home now. These storms that we're having now, this is not normal. But now it's starting to impact us in very real ways. Perhaps that'll that'll change and people will become. But as I say, folk have got a heck of a lot lot of other things to fret about. I want to talk about maybe hope and despair, if that's okay. And how, for me, when when I've engaged with, and it's been more, um, I guess, visual portrayals rather than written ones that that stru- that have struck me in my own past i realized that there are a whole different ways uh, different number of ways that people can engage but often they've stimulated a lot of emotion which has really helped overcome some of that kind of scientific barrier that you were talking about sandy like what what am i looking at and you know it's really helped connect me with the issue but often in a way that leaves me feeling very desperate and despairing. And I struggle with thinking about and translating that into hopefulness or action. How can we, how, how do you, and, and how do you see us being able to leverage the arts, leverage campaigns like Paper Boats to really engage with people, but in a way that can help kind of drive positivity alongside the, the fact that we are in a crisis. Yeah, hope's a really difficult one, and, and it's quite a, a difficult word because a lot of the time, like if, if you watch David Attenborough films and he tells you all about these dire things happening to the planet, and then at the end there's always this little bit, oh, but there is hope, and you get this sense that everybody's just sitting back on their sofa going, oh, that's all right then, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all being solved. So I, hope comes from action hope only really comes from action unless we're taking action there isn't going to be any hope um and i, th- I think that's the real key message and the paper boat is gives some everybody something really simple to do one of the best things that we can be doing about the climate crisis is speaking out um and particularly speaking out to our political leaders and you can sign petitions you can send template emails are they registering? Are they landing? But if a politician gets a paper boat in their inbox, well, that's, that's just, it's just a slightly different way of, of communicating that, that might just make them sit up a little bit. So I, I think, yeah, hope only really comes from action. To the earlier part of the conversation around the paper boats and also just speaking about the issue, that kind of thing, you might not need every single person who can't afford their energy this month to you know, be gluing themselves to an oil rig but anyone who has the capacity and bandwidth can speak about it and and engage in something like this and i, I think that's a that's a nice um message on action and i think this 
sort of segues very clunkily into the next part of the conversation. But in terms of doing is a is a, a good way to get things done, I like to think. But could you talk to us a little bit more about the work that you're doing specifically around sort of schools and, and libraries, how that's going and what your experience of that has been? We've set up boatyards in schools and libraries, including the National Library here in Scotland, who are very receptive. And a boatyard is a simple table you know, with paper and instructions and, and details of just how how to do your origami, origami activism, how to make your paper boat, how to stamp or write a message to it, uh, and addresses to send it to, which may be political people or maybe the group itself if we're planning an action. And it's just been so mild and imaginative and well taken up, I think. I don't know, Sandy, do you know how many of these boatyards we, we established? We'd certainly had 20 or 30 locations across Scotland that were, were making paper boats in libraries and schools. And and it was just such a simple thing. And one of our key things is that we're not using new resources. So we you can make a paper boat out of anything, an old book, an old magazine, anything like that. Um, so we're, we're not using up new resources. So we've, we encouraged schools and libraries to make their own paper Boatyards, use whatever they have, make it imaginative, make it creative. And that, that was hugely successful. So to my mind, just not using new resources for these things was really important. So we collected probably, we, we aimed for a thousand paper boats, a thousand climate hopes was our campaign that we delivered to the Scottish Parliament. And we certainly collected a thousand paper boats. We, we've published those hopes on our, our website. It's been fantastic to read those so so people do want a just transition they do want green jobs um adults in particular they want warm homes they want energy bills that are much lower and kids in particular want nature they want trees and and less pollution and less litter so it was it was a really interesting kind of stock take of, of what what scotland's climate hopes were and have you seen the politicians starting to sit up and listen to this? Silence. <laughs> we, because we're in Scotland, the Scottish government are actually taking climate change pretty seriously and they're doing some some really good things. Our, our argument is, is that none of it has been done quickly enough, even in a country that's really committed to, to tackling climate change. We're, we're, um, we, we know from the science that climate change is accelerating much, much faster than scientists predicted. Um, so uh, while in Scotland they're doing a great job, again, it's it's just not fast enough. None of it's fast enough. So we, we have seen engagement from our MSPs. But I wouldn't, you know, that's not just our campaign. There's a lot of campaigns going on in Scotland that are putting pressure on the, the Scottish government, the Stop Climate Chaos Scotland as well. So, um, and, and it, it's really just about adding our voices to that. So things are changing. Politicians are beginning to listen. And the more people that raise their voice, the better. Having said that, of course, we are part of the United Kingdom. And it's at United Kingdom level that oil and gas licences are being doled out willy-nilly. So it's um, it's not easy. We should talk about our action outside the Scottish Parliament buildings, though. Sandy, shouldn't we? Because that was that yes. Was, yeah, go ahead, Kathleen. Yes. <laughs> that would be good. Early in early in November, just ahead of the last COP summit, uh, we had a, a paper boats action outside the Scottish Parliament buildings in Edinburgh. Uh, if you don't know the buildings, that they have a, a public space at the front with ponds, 
And we assembled all our paper boats people and the thousand paper boats that, that Sandy mentioned, members of the public, and a choir, great folk singer Kareen Paulworts and her partner Stephen Deasley turned up with a scratch choir. They had just rehearsed that very morning uh, with a song, a paperboat song. So we had this wonderful choir singing. We had poems by, by myself and some other people. We had speeches and then we sailed our paper boats on, on the ponds outside the Parliament building, which was wonderfully, it was, it was actually quite moving and very photogenic. You know, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, did any MSPs come and join us? Yeah, I think I think two of them two of them turned up, um, Ariane Burgess and Monica Lennon. Um, but yeah, we um, we we'd written to all of the MSPs, and uh, probably a handful replied, um, and two turned up. But uh, we we know they're busy, but it's 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 a really vital issue. I wonder if some of them were maybe lost inside that horrible maze of a. Hollywood building. <laughs> <laughs> I guess fr- so. From that action, it, having to turn up isn't isn't a bad thing. And obviously, the the campaign has has gained some some momentum and some publicity. What's next for for paper boats? What are your your hopes for this? And where would you like to take it? Well, we had a, a bit of a rest over Christmas and New Year, and um, we're just gathering ourselves for another meeting next month to see you know take stock and and see what we can do from here. the The website. Um, is there with all the, the wonderful writing and um, photographs on, so anyone can look at that anytime. I think there'll be a call for new writing very shortly, so keep an eye on that website. It's paperboats.org if you're interested in submitting any work. Yeah, we. I think what what we're doing at the moment is is we're quite a small group. We're unfunded. It's it's all voluntary. So we we're looking. Um, at working with other groups that are, are running campaigns and how we can support that, I think that's that's the crucial thing that we can bring um, is to, to other people's campaigns, bring that creativity and that um, that artistry into campaigns that are, are running and it, to to bring their campaigns to a wider audience, ideally. So I think that's where we, we're heading is really looking at working with other organisations. What are your hopes and dreams for the future? So going beyond the kind of immediate next action if if you could really um wave a magic wand like where, where do you really want to see uh to see all of this taking us how far into the future are you talking as <laughs> far as you'd like to take us uh i do, I'm, I'm interested in deep time you know by which i mean anything from a thousand to ten thousand to twenty thousand years hence and that's that's I do wonder, yeah. with some excitement, I'd, I'd quite like to pop back for an afternoon and see, you know, did we weather this? Did we manage it? Did we navigate through? What became of it? You know, I would love to, or maybe I wouldn't, I don't know. But but yes, I, I like I like conjuring with that idea. Over the next uh, much shorter time frame, I would love to get a sense that this massive thing was turning around. Maybe it is turning around and we're just, we don't know yet. Sandy, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think for me, probably in the shorter term, I guess is is to really put pressure on politicians for politicians to be signing up, for example, to the fossil fuel uh, non proliferation treaty that's um, being touted as a motion in, in the Scottish Parliament. Um, 
I, I would love to see the UK signing up to that because it, it contains everything. It's got climate justice, it's um, you know loss and damage, and and the fair transition. So I I think for, for me, I think that's that's one to really back and get behind. And I would love to see the UK Parliament signing up to that. Well, that sounds achievable, unlike coming back in 20,000 years. To check in <laughs> Ever the practical. <laughs> we'll go with that one, Ever the practical. <laughs> but no, I'd love to come back in a thousand years' time and see, are, are we just a smear in, in geological time? That would be interesting. So the, this this podcast, I guess, just to, to, to wrap, is all about, or, or we try and make it as far as possible. It's not a talking shop. We want to, as far as possible, make it about action and things that people can actively go out and do should they have the bandwidth and the, the capacity to do so so for yourselves we'll take sandy first and then and then finish with kathleen if you had one message to to people listening to this interested in the, the campaign or, or your methods what what can they go out and do what's your your sort of your provocation to them personally i think the best thing that we can do is talk about climate change um but not just to the people in our bubble. I think social media keeps us very ensconced in a in a small world. Um, I would say get out on the streets and talk to people. I've I've done a lot of that kind of activism in the past, and it and it's astounding how um, little people really know about what they can do in terms of acting on climate change. Um, most people think climate action is recycling, but we're at a stage now that that we need to to, to really recycling's brilliant but we we really need more urgent action on fossil fuels so um the paper boat is is a fantastic conversation starter if you if you go up to somebody and um, ask if they want to talk about climate change they'll walk away if you go up to them and say would you like a paper boat um you're always greeted with a, a a smile and a willingness to to open the conversation so i think the most important thing is to talk about climate change and 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 express our worries about it as well be really open and honest about how how terrifying it is and kathleen i'll say what we cannot do sandy's very very good at positive and practical actions i, I would say what we cannot afford to do is despair and shrug especially as older ones, because it's <laughs> morally abhorrent to the younger people that we should just shrug and say, well, you know, nothing we can do, it's too bad. You know, I, th- I find that galvanising. We cannot do that to the children. We have to keep positive. We have to keep finding solutions and finding actions just to demonstrate to them that, that all is not lost. You know? I'm hoping that we can, um, that we can give you one um, final word, Kathleen, and whether you'd be... Happy to uh, to share to share a reading of uh, the poem that you presented back in November outside Scottish Parliament. I wrote this poem specifically for the the paper boats action outside the Scottish Parliament, and it's called "What the Paper Boats Said." When I was tree, I believed would stand forever, sighing consorts of wind and rain, till the felling came. When dragged from our hillside, we were stripped, pulped, milled. Myself, I considered fortunate. I just lay blank in an upstairs room before I felt a scratching, tears, then scorings out. Dear John, dear world, dear God, the empty skies, the poor drowned animals. But ah, relief at last to know a little passion, a little hard-won poetry. With that, my forest spirit quickened, as though the wind, prophesying friend, had sought me out, saying, prepare yourself, for soon 
you'll change again. You'll be taken up, folded, creased, turned, folded back in yourself, till fitted out with bow and stern, your cargoed with world love and give a damn. Then set sail, few at first, but amassing into fleets, entire horizon-filling armadas, launched from peoples everywhere who cry, enough. Fly your colours, paperboat. I'll speed you. Demand a living earth. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. And thank you so much to, to both of you. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining us and for sharing your, your passions and your inspirations and your concerns and your asks. I think it's really, uh, really beautiful. And I would say to anybody that was moved by the reading, like I was, <laughs> I was definitely holding myself back please do visit the website paperboats.org or I believe that folk um, can also email you hello at paperboats.org if they want to, to join in or to get a free digital paperboats toolkit. So thank you so much for all of that. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Local Zero. The number one way you can help this pod is to share it with someone that you think might like it. So if there are any other climate change, energy geeks out there that, that you think would be into the, the type of things that we talk about, why don't you recommend us? And please also remember to email us localzeropod at gmail.com if there's anything else you'd like us to discuss. Well, for now, thank you and goodbye. Bye.